Good morning, church family. In 1936, Adolf Hitler tasked a group of Nazi soldiers to search for a long-lost artifact that was said to have the power to wipe out entire armies. After being lost for centuries, it was rumored that the Ark of the Covenant had been discovered in Egypt. Now, the U.S. government found out about Hitler's plot, and so they reached out to the man that they knew who could stop the Nazi soldiers from getting to the Ark. They reached out to Dr. Henry Indiana Jones. They knew they needed a man who would follow the pathway to find the Ark and beat the Nazi soldiers. It was a race against time. There were deadly traps, like snakes. Why does it always have to be snakes? There were Nazis. And there was also Indiana's long-lost, or long-time rival, Dr. Rene Bullock, who was all trying to get to the Ark before Indiana Jones. Now, of course, chaos and adventure ensue. Nazis get their faces melted. And our hero, Indiana Jones, secures the Ark of the Covenant, and he prevents the Nazis from taking possession. He opens up the Ark, but inside he finds nothing but sand. Nothing but the destroyed ruins of the contents that it once held. Now, according to the Bible, the Ark of the Covenants was overlaid with gold, and it was a box like you see here on the screen. Inside, it held the tablets of the, of the commandments. It held the budded staff of Aaron, and it held a pot of manna. More importantly, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence among his people. The Israelites believed that the ark was symbolically God's throne, that wherever the ark was, Yahweh's presence was there also. It was a physical representation of the presence of God. Now, in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Hitler sought out the ark to lead the way for his quest for worldwide domination. But in the passage we'll study today, Joshua is preparing to deliver the people of Israel, and the Ark of the Covenant is going to lead the way for their conquest of Canaan. So if you will, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3, and stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. Starting here in verse 1. Joshua started early the next morning and left the Acacia Grove with all the Israelites. They went as far as the Jordan and stayed there before crossing. After three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, carried by the Levitical priest, you are to break camp and follow it. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between yourselves and the Ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way to go. For you haven't traveled this way before. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, because the Lord will do wonders among you tomorrow. Then he said to the priests, carry the Ark of the Covenant and go on ahead of the people. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead before them. You may be seated. So here, the Hebrew people, for the first time in 40 years, stand in striking distance of their promised land the land that God promised to give them. And all they had to do in turn was obe obedient to his word. The problem is, is that they are now on unfamiliar turf. They don't know which way to go. They don't know how to get to this promised land. 
They must first prepare themselves to follow God to get the promise that he will give them. In today's passage, I want to see two things. We're going to see the pathway to a holy God, and then we're going to see the pathway to a holy people. So first, our passage picks up in the morning, and the entire Israelite people stand on the banks of a river. And at this point, there's a huge traveling party, and they're wondering, okay, so once again, we're standing before a large body of water. How are we going to get across this thing? Last time, God showed up, and he parted the waters, but that hasn't happened yet. They've lost Moses, and Joshua is now leading this group of people. So the officers of the camp, they go around telling the people to prepare themselves. They're telling them that the ark is going to guide the way. They say that when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God carried by the Levitical priests, you're to break camp and follow it. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between yourselves and the ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way to go, for you have not traveled this way before. The Ark of the Covenant, which is carried by the Levitical priests, is going to lead the way for the people of God. And so as the Ark goes forward, the people are told to, to follow behind, but that they need to keep a distance. The Ark of the Covenant was holy, and so the people could not go near it except for the Levitical priests. And so they had to stay far enough away to stay safe, but still close enough to keep their eyes on the prize, to keep their eyes on the presence of God who is set to go before them. Our God is a God who goes before his people, and he is here today to fulfill his promise for the Israelite people. His presence, his holy embodiment is going to lead the people to the promised land this time. God never promises an easy road, but he does promise that if you will follow him, he will safely guide you. When we feel that a path is uncertain, it can be really hard to follow God, and that's where the Israelite people are today. It's been said that life can be kind of like a roller coaster. Life has ups and downs, it veers to the right, it veers to the left. Sometimes life feels like it's moving really fast, and sometimes it feels like it's at a crawl. So when you're looking at a roller coaster, you know that you can trust the roller coaster because typically you can see the whole thing. You can see the beginning of the ride, you can see the end of the ride, and most of the time you can also see the journey that you're going to have in between with all the ups and downs and the loop-to-loops. But sometimes when you follow God, you don't trust the ride because you can't see what's laid before you. The people of Israel, they couldn't see the way, they did not know the way, and so at this time they had to trust God that he would lead their way. The Israelites were stepping off a 40-year roller coaster where they were wandering in the desert. And now before them is the next ride, and they had to make the decision if they were going to follow God and get on this next ride. So last time they lost sight of the presence of God, but this time would be different. They knew that they would follow God. They would keep their eyes fixed on the ark, on God's very presence. And they knew that if they did this, that he would guide them to the promised land. The ark's purpose was both symbolic and ritual. It played a very prominent role in the miracles that the Israelites saw whenever they were traveling amongst the wilderness. Ultimately, there is a more significant meaning to the ark. 
We talk about the ark meaning the presence of God, but the ark was merely a shadow of the one who would come, who would be the true presence of God amongst his his people. The ark of the covenant will find its ultimate fulfillment in the work and person of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews connects these two events together, and so I'm going to take a detour to Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to take a look at how the author of Hebrews connects the Ark of the Covenant, the high priest and the tabernacle, to Jesus. So in Hebrews chapter 9, the author starts in verse 1, and he says that now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. And behind the second curtain was a tent called the Most Holy Place. It had the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The first covenant relied on a priest to go and make a sacrifice annually for the Hebrew people. He must enter the holy room, make this sacrifice, and make sure he did nothing to mess that up because he was responsible for covering and atoning for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. But all of these things were just a mere shadow of the one to come. We go on and we see that in Hebrews 9 verses 11, a little further down the page, we see that these rituals and symbols were there to point the way but they were not yet the way. Because he says that Christ has appeared as the high priest and the good things have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption, for the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So whereas the first four verses describe the old covenant, now these last five verses are discovering what the new covenant looks like. It is connecting Jesus to the, all of the things that were symbols and rituals of the old covenant. The true pathway to, new God, to God is through this new covenant that has been instated by Christ. Christ is our greater and more perfect tabernacle. Christ is our greater and more perfect high priest. And Christ is the greater and more pre- perfect presence of God that has come to dwell among his people. He came to ter- tear the curtain in two, as told in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, Because before, a veil was hung in between the people and the priests. The priest must pass through the veil, but Christ has come, and he came, and when he died on the cross, he tore the veil in two, opening that pathway to a holy God. Jesus stands before you today, offering that same promise. Because when the ark was no longer necessary to symbolize God's presence, Jesus came to do that very thing. At some point in Israelite history, the ark of the covenant was lost. To this day, it has not been found, and they do not know what happened to it. But ultimately, the ark has found its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Through his work and the cross, Jesus is, or God's presence envelops all of his people. 
The ark was there to show God's presence among the people, but Jesus came to do that very thing. And now for those who accept him and follow him, God's very presence dwells in the hearts of every single believer. For the Israelites, the ark paved the way to the, to the promised land. And now for us, Christ, God made in the flesh, in our presence, has paved a pathway to a holy God. Jesus is the only pathway to a holy God and to a true promised land, eternal life in heaven with him. Jesus himself told the disciples in John 14, 6, I am the way. Not a way. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. That no one comes to the Father except through me. There is a better and greater promised land that we have been promised as God's people. And Jesus is the only pathway to reach that promised land. There are some here today that have trodden down several pathways in life. And sometimes that leads to despair, uncertainty, You feel like there's no hope and there's no meaning. You're looking for peace. You're looking for comfort. And I want to tell you today that Jesus is that peace and he is that comfort. That the Israelites, they fix their focus on God and this God that goes before them. And they trusted in his promise of deliverance. And for you today, if you will trust God for deliverance, that he will grant you that salvation. And so this, this is a decision that you have never made in your life. There's going to be a time at the end of this service where you can come forward and share with a pastor or counselor of your desire to make this pathway and to follow after a holy God. For Christians, more and more we feel like we find ourselves in a culture that we don't recognize anymore. And so this makes us want to go back to a way that was the good old days, when we felt like things were better. But I want to encourage you today that the gospel always moves fastest when it's under pressure. Because God moves first when his people are moving themselves. And so we must become a people that are set apart with service to God. If you want to see a change in the culture, we have to first see a change in the church. We must be a holy people And that's what we're going to see here in the second half of these verses. In verses 5 and 6, we're going to see a pathway to a holy people. So picking up here in verse 5, Joshua's going to tell the people to consecrate yourselves. That's not a word that we use very often. What does it mean to consecrate yourselves? What does the Bible mean when he asks us to be holy? The word translated here in Hebrew is kadesh, which means to be set apart or to be holy. And it's important here, it's an imperative statement. When he says to consecrate yourselves, to be holy, it is something that you must do. In Exodus 19, 10 through 15, Moses commands the people to consecrate themselves. And he gives a little detail of what that looks like. It looks like the ritual washing of yourself and abstinence from sexual relations. This is what it looked like for the Hebrew people. But when you talk about the washing of yourselves, what he means by that, and you dig into it, you find that it's a physical representation of a spiritual act. He is telling the people that if you want to see God do wonders, you must first cleanse yourself. You must prepare yourself before God can work his wonders among yourself. He wants to conform people to his likeness. That is God's goal through Christ, is Christ-likeness. That we, he wants us to be like him. There are two sp- specific verses in Leviticus that kind of drive this point home. 
In Leviticus 11.44, God says that I am the Lord your God, so you must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. In Leviticus 19.2, he says, speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holiness is what God is and holiness is what God desires for your life. To put it plainly, God's people should look and act differently than the rest of the people around us. It's a place that we often fall short in our call to follow God. We will accept an attitude of religious piety and reject an attitude of humility. If we're not careful, we're going to accept following the Christianity of culture and reject following the Christianity of the Bible. If we're not careful, we will accept a call to be in church and reject a call to be the church. And there is a really big difference between being in church and being the church. Throughout history, God's people were known as a people who were set apart. That was the whole purpose of the law. God didn't just instate a series of silly rules for the people to follow. He wanted his people to look different from every other nation out there. He wanted them to be set apart. God wanted to do wonders, but due to their disobedience, he left them to wander. They now look to Joshua to lead them in walking in the way. There are many references to walking in God's ways throughout the Bible. And in the Old Testament, there's one particular passage that really speaks to what it looks like to walk in the way. It also points to a divine teacher who would come to put God's word in their hearts. Isaiah 30, 21 says that your eyes will see your teacher. And when you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear his command behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Earlier we saw in John 14, 6 that Jesus told the disciples, I am the way. And in fact, the early New Testament church, they didn't refer to themselves as Christians. They referred to themselves as followers of the way. In Acts, the full transformational power of the way is on full display through the story and life of the Apostle Paul. It's really neat because if you look at Acts and you put these two verses together, you can see a transformational power of a man. In Acts 9, 1 through 2, Luke tells us that Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women belonged to the way, he might bring to them pr prisoners to Jerusalem. So we have a man here who is killing people who are following the way. But years later, the book of Acts nearly ends with this. Paul is telling Felix in 2414, but I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. Becoming a follower of the way caused a transformational disturbance in the life of Paul. And for those here today, those who are following the way, it should cause a transformational disturbance in your life. It should lead you to have a response. And that response should be seeking holiness. So what does holiness look like? What does it look like to walk in the way? In the Bible, when people have been with God... They are changed. Nobody who encountered Jesus was ever the same, whether they accepted him or rejected him. Sometimes the change is physical and spiritual in nature. We see that when Moses saw God 
and was on the mountaintop, and he came down. His face shone brightly. He was literally shining from being in the presence of God. When people see you, when you leave church, does it look like you've been in the presence of Jesus? Can the people recognize that on Monday morning, you've been with Jesus? On Monday morning, do you just look as miserable as everybody else in the office? After school, are you engaging in the same shenanigans as your friends? Most of the time, when you are following somebody, you're going to end up reflecting what they look like. Which pathway are you on? Are you like the Israelites with your eyes fixed on the promises of God? Or are you like the Israelites with your eyes fixed on the fickle promises of man? There's a verse earlier in Joshua that kind of makes me laugh. Because the Hebrew people in Joshua 1 tell Joshua, we're going to follow you just as we followed Moses. And my thought to that was Joshua must have been like, wait, hold up. I have been with you people. I have been with Moses. And I've seen how well you all obey. And y'all obeyed Moses so well last time that we ended up walking around the woods for 40 years. Like, if y'all are going to follow me like you followed Moses, I don't want to have any part of that. And what we find is that following God is hard. But Joshua, Joshua understood what the people needed. He knew that this time for the people to truly follow after him as they followed after Moses, who followed after God, they would need to fix their eyes on the very presence of God. So it's kind of like, have you ever been on a road trip and you're following somebody who's driving? So maybe you're following the person who, let's just say, takes yellow lights really leniently. Like, like the yellow lights are more like the pirate's coat. It's just a suggestion to slow down. So you're following behind your guide, and the light starts to turn yellow and then red. And then the the, the guide, the guide has to make the decision to speed up or slow down. Because the guide knows if he goes too fast, he's going to lose his people. But he also knows, well, there's a yellow light. I need to hit this gas and get on through it. And the people behind are trying to figure out, oh, my gosh, I hope that he stops. Because if not, I'm going to lose my way. He hopes that he will be able to still follow his guide even after he goes on ahead of him. So if you stop and you sit there at the lights and your leader is on their way, what do you do? You do everything in your power to be able to look ahead at the presence of the one you're following and you try to make sure that you don't lose yourself in following the way. So God has given us a couple different ways to keep his pathway so first he's given us his word god's word acts as a guide to keep us on the right pathway and he and paul tells us in second timothy three sixteen that the bible serves as a roadmap to keep people's god to, to keep people's uh keep god's people on a pathway of holiness it says that all scripture is inspired by god and is profitable for teaching for rebuking and for correcting and for training in righteousness So the Bible is kind of like a highway, and it keeps us on that right track. Now, sometimes due to life and due to our own sinfulness, we go off the road. 
We lose our guide and we're off into the grass. And so the Bible works as a tool to rebuke us and turn us and correct us back on that path. And when the Bible says here that that is for the purpose of training in righteousness, what it is telling us is it's for the purpose of training us in holiness. It's designing us to be a people that are a holy people. Your church is also here to help keep you on that path. At Wallace, we have developed a discipleship pathway. And so it's a map that tells us where we are along the path. And it kind of takes us through five simple steps. After our Joshua series, our very next series is going to be a, a series of sermons that tell us what each pathway looks like and how we know where we are on along the pathway. So it starts with the audience. The audience are the people that are out there. Those are the people we're trying to get to. And we want to get them to B, which is the big group, which is those of you that are in here. And through the big group, we hope to break off into smaller groups and live life in Christian community. Here at Wallace, we call those our connect groups. And then again, the group gets smaller again because from there we move on to, to step D, which is our discipleship groups, where we take three to five men and women uh, separately together to learn how to be more like Christ. The goal of a discipleship group is to help form you and hold each other accountable to being more like Christ, to living life as holy people. And then we have our e-groups. And we see the amazing wonders that are happening out here on Merchants Road every Wednesday nights, where the e-groups or the e-teams, they go out there into the audience to try to people back here, and you can see that it's a big circle. We're constantly moving throughout the discipleship pathway. And so everybody is somewhere on this pathway. And over the next few weeks after we finish our Joshua series, I hope you learn where you are along the pathway because it's going to lead you to a life of discipleship, which is going to lead you to a pathway of holiness. For Christians today, we learn that we're going to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And it's because Matthew, or, uh, Jesus takes uh, James and John and Peter up to the top of the mountain. And they see his full glory on display. And Peter, who always has something fun to say, says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And he just starts throwing up tabernacles all over the place. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, I am the greater tabernacle. Often we're like Peter. We're trying to throw tabernacles up all over the place, hoping that God will come and bless our plans. Rather, we need to be prayerfully seeking God and following him. We try to direct the pathway of the ark when we need the ark to direct us. We are also to be a holy people. And if Jesus can transform Peter like this, imagine what he can do for your life. He transformed Peter from a bumbling buffoon who's throwing up tabernacles to the rock of his church. God is not in a rush to do this work. And I think that's where it gets really hard for us sometimes is we're, we, we think that holiness is unattainable. Well, I can't be perfectly holy, so I'm just not going to do it at all. And we just rely on God's grace to hopefully get us there the rest of the way. But I'm here to tell you that if you follow Christ, if you follow his pathway, if you keep your eyes fixed on him, that he will guide your pathway. He will be faithful to his promise to lead you to a life of holiness. Remember, God called his people to consecrate themselves again and again. It is not a one-time thing. It is a lifestyle of holiness that we have to follow. Even Jesus 
He spent 30 years preparing himself for his ministry. And that ministry only lasted three years. So God is not in a hurry to do his work. He's waiting for the right time with the right people who are willing to follow him. God uses every tick mark on our timeline to create a holy people so that we can be faithful followers of him. God wants us to grow into his likeness and he uses his church, he uses his word, and he uses his presence among us to do that. So for those of you that have not yet made the decision to follow Christ, I've mentioned several times that this path is hard. So if you're looking for an easy way out, if you think Christianity is a religion for, a religion for weak people, if you think Christianity is a religion that is just a crutch for people who can't figure things out on their own, then you're wrong. God uses broken people to bring broken lives together for his glory. And so it's going to force you to humble yourself. It's going to force you to humble yourself before a holy God and give up everything to follow him. Like Indiana Jones, he had to overcome his deathly fear of snakes in order to keep his eyes on the prize of the ark. And there are going to be things in your life that you have to overcome. And being a believer of Christ does not make it easier, but it does make it more meaningful. It does give you hope. It does give you comforts. You must overcome these obstacles to pursue God because God wants this for your life. He wants you to come to him and to be his child. So to take your first steps on this pathway, it's simple. You believe in him. You give yourself up for him and you choose to follow his pathway. You admit that you're a sinner in need of redemption. That may be you today. God, I am no good. I cannot come to this by myself. And you're right. Because you need God's presence among you. You need God's presence and dwelling in you to reach this pathway. You have to believe that Jesus was the son of God, that he came to this earth that to die a death that you could not die and live a life that you could not live. He died for your sins. He died for my sins and the sins of every person in this room. And so if that is a decision that you want to make today, this is the time that we mentioned earlier that, is, that you come forward to make that choice. Because God's promised pathways are perfect and they are good and they are offered for you today. Because today is the day of salvation. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness for your promises that are good and whole and true. God, and I pray that for every person that is sitting in here today, that they will seek your way. They will seek to walk in the way that leads to the promised land and eternal life with you. Father, we thank you for your love and for your presence among us. And Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that your word would not return void and that your people would respond. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.